Financial Residency is proud to bring you Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Each week, Tammy Krauss explores a new topic related to achieving financial independence by building and protecting your wealth. She invites guests who are experts in their fields who will share honest and valuable advice on a variety of topics. If you have an idea for a podcast, please email Tammy, that's T-A-M-M-Y, at financialresidency.com. Now grab your front row seat to this week's Grand Rounds. Hi, and welcome to Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Today, I have with me Michael Schaff, who is a partner with Wilentz, Goldman, and Spitzer, and his focus is on healthcare and corporate law. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Can you just kind of give us an overview of who you are and the type of clients that you represent? Sure. I am a corporate and healthcare and cannabis attorney, and primarily things that I do are in the healthcare field. I represent primarily providers, physicians, surgery centers, facilities, a few hospitals, um, a lot of providers with respect to different types of business and transactional type of issues. Okay. And it sounded to me like you do a lot of like contract law, you know, bringing physicians together, maybe when they're joining a bigger practice or opening a surgery center, those types of things. Is that correct? Exactly. What I do is from soup to nuts, when a doctor comes out of medical school, their first employment agreement to when they join a practice, to when they become an owner in a practice, to when they retire, to when they merge their practice, basically a life cycle of a physician association in the medical community. Okay. And we talked a little before the show, you do a lot in working with practices who maybe want to enter into an agreement with a private equity firm. And reality, what goes on right now is physicians are very frustrated with the business of healthcare. You know, they went to medical school to help people to be doctors, and now they're spending a significant amount of their time basically making sure they get reimbursed for things, finding out how to get reimbursed, dealing with denials of service, et cetera. And what's going on now in in the market is that there's a lot of dollars that are in private equity funds that deal with healthcare-related arrangements. And what's going on is that physicians, as they start to age and go forward, they want to stop with the business of being a doctor to actually be a doctor. So they contract with these organizations, entities that, depending on the state, because there's something called the corporate practice of medicine that I can explain later, but what they do is they buy the non-clinical portion of the practice and enter into a contract to provide the back office type of work for the practice so the physician doesn't have to deal with it, provided that the physician maintains its own medical decisions. And they're not basically told with respect to what to do, what tests to order and what not to order. Do you end up selling like a percentage of the business to the private equity firm? Do you become partners in a sense? Yeah, what ends up happening is it depends on the valuation, but most private equity firms, you know, they buy the again, the back office, and they still want the physician to have an interest with respect to things and some type of golden handcuff to keep them in the practice and doing the right thing. So a lot of times they roll over part of the practice and they end up owning 20 or 30% or more. You know, it's the same thing as if 
you end up contracting with anyone to sell your business, you are really the business. And as okay. such, you know, they want to make sure you're committed to it and they want to incentivize you to keep working and doing what you were doing and having, you know, some skin in the game. As I indicated before, there's something called the corporate practice of medicine doctrine. And what that basically does is restricts who in certain states that have this doctrine, like New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, a majority of the states have some type of doctrine. And it could be different if you're a dentist, an MD, a chiropractor, whatever you do. And depending on your license, it's a state-by-state -state issue that you have to look at. But what it does is it prohibits non-licensed individuals from employing physicians, okay? Ah, because they okay. don't want the non-doctor to help decide how the doctor is going to treat patients, order unnecessary tests, you know, things that are medically unnecessary and other issues. So it's a very key doctrine and it impacts how these deals are structured. And generally when we structure these deals, you form a separate entity that provides all the non-clinical issues. So for example, they own the office potentially. They do EMR, the electronic health records. They maintain it. They employ the staff, the non-clinical staff, and take up a lot of the daily administrative stuff, which, you know, if you represent any practices or you deal with practices, you know, normally no one wants to deal with it. There may be one or two doctors that really like it, and it takes them away from spending their time being a doctor. So you have actual business people who do this, which is more efficient. And there are pluses and minuses to it. But what's going on now in the industry is these private equity companies are buying it at a multiple of earnings. So you could get anywhere from three or four times earnings to 10 or 12 times earnings. Wow. Okay. So if you're, especially the doctors who think that they have five or six years left to work, they can upfront get a large payday which would be their retirement. And these sums generally are capital gains treatment to them. So there's a lower tax on it. And they continue to work until they retire and transition patients over a period of anywhere from two to five years. It's a very good issue if you want to maximize your revenue. The issue is picking the right partner, someone who's not going to do things. And you hear horror stories, you know, that in some instances, the managers come in and they basically keep a quota with respect to you, you're ordering tests that may or may not be necessary. So you have to do your due diligence to make sure that whoever you're partnering with is appropriate. How would a physician or an entire practice go about finding the right private equity firm to partner with? That's a good question. In many ways in which they do it. My experience, and as we were talking earlier, is a lot of times a physician hears that someone else did something like this and they get a referral. And normally it's at a cocktail party after they've had one too many drinks. So <laughs> they just start dealing with it. There are brokers that help you introduce you to these entities. And a, a number of them, there are a lot of conferences that talk about it and to have companies present. And a lot of times it's just doing the right due diligence. And if you know by an internet search, you can come across a number of them and you have to ask questions. And you not only have to ask questions, you have to ask for references and talk to other doctors who've been through it with them before and see what the positives are as well as the negatives. I'm sure this question varies contract to contract, but if a doctor were to engage a private equity firm, do they maintain any control over like the office staff? Would they be able to choose their own nurse, for example? 
those are things that you know the physician needs to put in the contract okay to make sure what it is and if you hire an attorney that has experience with respect to it they'll build in appropriate protection for the physician to make sure that the things that the physician may not think about they've been through it before and know what's important to physicians so yeah you can and typically you have a clinical committee and as part of it those things sometimes you know you're able to make sure that they can't terminate your staff without your consent okay and going back to that concept of corporate practice of medicine and you mentioned you know maybe a doctor has 5 years left in practice and that corporate entity can't employ the doctor would that mean that the doctor has to sell his percentage of the business when he retires in 5 years typically when someone retires they tend to sell their interest in their medical practice okay, okay? if they roll over their ownership interest into it's called a management service organization, which is the entity that does the non-clinical stuff. It depends. Sometimes they allow you to stay on for a period of time and other times they don't. It's something you can negotiate. Okay. Can you talk about some of the things that you advise your client on trying to protect themselves within the contracts that you review? Sure. Those types of contracts, you know, at the end of the day is you want to know who your partner is. Okay. So if you're doing a deal with private equity group A, you want to make sure that they don't bring in and sell the next year or sometime to private equity B without your ability to consent to it. Because next thing you know, the people that you think are great have sold out for a huge amount of money and they're now, you have new partners. So you want to make sure that you at least have the ability to meet with them, et cetera. Keeping in mind that if you're private equity group B, typically you would go and speak with the doctors because you don't want doctors that are not happy with you being their partner. In some of these entities, there are a lot of doctors involved. So they just do what it is, you know, and they just go forward. Have you come across any contract clauses that were just absolute red flags that you've had to advise, you know, physicians in the past to try and avoid? Absolutely. Keep in mind that a lot of these groups try to structure things for the investors to benefit themselves. That's what they do. And many doctors, unfortunately, don't hire attorneys to review it. Or if they hire attorneys, it's their brother-in-law, their sister-in-law, their friend's parents, or whatever it is who practice real estate law or who practice you know, some other type of law and don't specialize in this. There are a significant number of healthcare regulatory issues. And what you really need to make sure is that you hire a lawyer who does this from a corporate perspective. They need to be transactional attorneys in the healthcare field because there are so many different issues that affect from a regulatory perspective, not only with respect to the corporate practice of medicine, but there's stark laws, there's anti-kickback laws, there's state stark and anti-kickback laws or something similar to it. There's licensing issues. There's fee splitting issues. There's, you know, it's kind of the keep every lawyer employed act because there's so many different items that need to be dealt with. I bet. It sounds like, I mean, not only are you a speaker at, you know, different events, lawyers for physicians, that kind of thing, but you even teach law. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. It's tons of fun. One of the first times I taught law, I don't know if you ever saw the show, The Paper Chase, it deals with Harvard first-year law students. Yeah. And the professor is an older gentleman who kind of 
points to people and puts them all on the spot and asks questions. But it scares the pants out of people who are shy. They're different types of students, some who are of confidence and some don't. But Sounds what it like does, residency. Yeah, it, <laughs> what it does is it teaches you to come into class prepared. So a lot of times I play off of each person. I ask someone what they think about it. And then I ask someone else if they agree or disagree. Blows their mind. It's a lot of fun. That sounds great. You know, we kind of started the show with the different types of practices that you have. And it sounds like you also do a little bit for physicians who are trying to bring in maybe a secondary form of income. We like to refer to it as side gigs. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Sure. sure. It depends on what it is and what they do. There are a number of issues that if you're planning on doing that, you got to think about. Number one, the first one, if you're an employee someplace, you have to make sure that it doesn't violate whatever restrictive covenants you have. Okay. Because a lot of doctors sign documents, it gets put in a drawer. And when does it get looked at? When there's a problem. So a lot of times they forget. So they may be involved in some other affiliation or other type of deal and not realize that their contract's currently prohibited. So they have to be concerned because they can lose their job and they can be sued for damages and lost profit. The second issue that they have to be concerned of is, and I mentioned it before, regulatory issues, because there are a number of, and again, there are state issues as well as federal, but let's talk about the federal. There's something called the anti-kickback law which says that you can't be paid for referrals. So you have to be careful how these arrangements are structured. And there's something called the Stark Law, which is another one that you can't have an interest in something that you refer to. So for example, if you're an orthopedic surgeon and you want to also have a physical therapy practice, you can't refer to a separate entity that does physical therapy and owns it because it violates the law, okay? You can do it through your own practice. There's different ways in which you can structure it. But, you know, I'm a New York Yankee fan, baseball player, but my clients generally don't look good in pinstripes, which is the Yankees uniform. <laughs> so we don't want that to happen. So we try to educate them with respect to that. Okay. Also issues on a state-by-state basis with respect to fee splitting and how you deal with it. So, you know, it's good that you have these side gigs and you're thinking about these side gigs, but before you enter into any of them, make sure you speak with somebody who has experience with respect to the regulatory issues and the business issues of being a physician. Because I get clients call me up all the time and say, you know, I'm doing X, Y, or Z. It's okay, right? And the next thing they ask is, what's it going to cost? And I always have the same response. I say, if I call you up and I say, I have a pain in my side, can you tell me what's wrong with me and what it's going to cost to make me better without examining me? I wouldn't know. So you have to make sure that you're able to communicate what's going on. And another issue is facts are so important, just like when you're interviewing a patient, you know, if they leave out something significant, you may not be able to properly, you know, determine what illness they have. As a lawyer, it's the exact same thing. You need to understand what it is. And keep in mind that there are always ways to do things. You may not get 100% what you want but you may be able to get close. So what I always try to do is I try to go backwards with my clients because most of them come in and say, oh, my friend X, Y, or Z, you know, is doing something and they give me three or four facts and they're saying they're doing something that based on the three or four facts are illegal. And I would say, I think you don't have all the facts and we can't do what you want to do, but the facts may change. And then 
I stop them. I say, what do you want to do? What's your end game? And then what we try to do is reinvent it or re-engineer the thought process to get them where they want to go, because you can't just do something based on limited facts. And, you know, it's unfortunate, but many people don't get all the facts together, right? So you have to be very careful with respect to it. Sounds like you'd be a perfect person to have on your side if you're trying to go into a new adventure. I enjoy it because I feel like I'm helping people. So many lawyers hate being lawyers because they're fighting with everybody all the time. I don't fight with people. I'm a transactional lawyer. Everyone walks away happy. And my goal is to structure things that work for everybody. You know, if you're doing a business transaction, you can structure it differently. You can save a lot of money in taxes. If you get capital gains treatment instead of ordinary income, that saves you half the amount of money in taxes right off the bat. You know, wow. so clients tend to like me when I do that. <laughs> well, I know you're based in New Jersey, but do you practice in multiple states or? Yeah, yeah, we do things throughout, primarily in the East. We have an office on Wall Street in New York City. We have a couple offices in New Jersey. We have an office in Philadelphia. But I do things, we do things all around. We may need to get local counsel in certain states, depending on what the issue is. But yes, we, you know, a deal is a deal. There's just a little nuances, but you can't ignore getting someone who's familiar with how things work in the States because it really makes a big difference. I bet. Is this a really highly specialized form of law? Well, it is. It's getting more and more broad. A lot more people are getting involved in it. You know, when I started doing this, healthcare law was representing hospitals. That's what it was. And there's an organization called the American Health Lawyer Association. It's now called American Health Law Association that I was on the board for a number of years. And I was the chair of the physician organization practice group. And I was actually chair of the Physician and Hospital Law Institute that they have every year. And they have a, a number of other seminars. But what I've done is I've written a book on representing physicians, you know, with a number of people. We're in like our sixth edition. And nobody, you know, most of the people who represented physicians at the time, as I started earlier, they're the, you know, the sister-in-law who does real estate, the matrimonial friend or whatever. And they didn't have any expertise and they didn't have any ex expertise in business. And the way I started is a few of my friends were graduating medical school. And since they were doing employment agreements, and since I was a business deal, I said, I could do that. And I started learning it and I was helping them out along the way. And it turns out that the Stark laws came out in like 1991 and changed the way there are a lot more regulatory issues affecting doctors. And I decided I'd go to a seminar out in California and maybe I'd learn something because, you know, I was so afraid that I didn't know anything. And I sat through it and I realized I knew as much as the person speaking it because I did a lot of the stuff and I got involved. And again, then I wrote a book on it and I've written articles and I lecture along the way. In fact, for about, I don't even know how many years, 15 or 20 years, I spoke at the Fundamentals of Health Law Institute in Chicago every year in October and November, the American Health Law Association brings in about 400 to 500 newly minted healthcare lawyers, people who want to do it. It becomes like a boot camp. And I would speak on how you represent physicians. And it was fun because I felt like I was paying it forward because people helped me along the way. Well, thanks for being on our side. We need more people like you. <laughs> It's good. As I started saying earlier, a lot of lawyers don't like being lawyers because they feel as though it's adversarial, it's not fun. I like it. I mean, I'm fortunate. I get to speak with very intelligent clients. You know, the doctors are smart. 
You know, most of them appreciate everything you do. They thank you because they're the same thing. We're both service businesses. And again, I've been doing it for a long time and I really enjoy it. And I love my clients. I've become very good friends with a lot of my clients. You know, I can go to sleep and I feel good when I get home. And a lot of people don't say that. I can imagine. Well, if someone wanted to, you know, get in contact with you and get your expertise for some type of contract that they might want to enter into, how would they get in touch with you, Michael? Oh, thank you. They could either email me at mshaff, S-C-H-A-F-F, at Wilentz, W-I-L-E-N-T-Z dot com, or call me at 732-855-6047. And they can go to our website, www.wilentz.com and you know they can see my bio and see what I've done and ask whatever questions I have. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know I said it earlier, but I really appreciate having people like you on our side. So thank you. It's my pleasure. Anytime you need anything, I'm more than welcome to answer questions. I appreciate it. And I hope all of you will tune in again next week for Grand Rounds.